Well, good, good morning. Good morning, Pillar Church. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. And as always, it's an honor and a joy to be able to open up God's word with you. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles right now to the book of Malachi as we continue our series in the book of Malachi called True Worship. Now, as you're turning there, I just want to share with you a little bit about Pillar Church. Our, our vision, our, our mission, our aim is to lead people closer to Jesus and each other. That's all we're about. That's what we want to do. Uh, and I hope and pray that this morning's message would lead you closer to Jesus. While you're turning there and while we're reading our hearts, allow me to pray. And then we will dive into the text. Father, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you have, in the midst of all that's happening in this world, you have allowed the people of God to press forth. And you have shown proof that there is no gate that can come against your church. There is no power that can stop your people. Not because your people are, are great and mighty, but because their God is great and mighty. And you have allowed us to gather in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of social unrest, in the midst of technical difficulties, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of trials and tribulations at home, you have allowed us to meet for a singular purpose, which is to praise you, to corporately worship you. And we will not forsake the gathering of your people. And so now, Lord, as we are here this morning, as we, as we have the, the, the weight of the world literally on our shoulders, as we've come into this place, as we sit at home and our couches and we look around us and our circumstances are ever present. And even for some of us, for some of you online, our circumstances are suffocating us. Would you be that breath of oxygen that we need? Would something about your word give hope in the midst of dire circumstance? Would it do what it does despite my delivery, despite my exegetical abilities, despite the heart of the sinner hearing your word? Would you penetrate that heart against the will of the person. And would you draw him to you? Draw her to you. I don't know what word from this verse is going to do it. But I pray that the word of God would fulfill its promise and never returning void this morning. Father, would, would you just stick your pinky finger in this place so that we can behold your glory? Just a little bit. And would we decrease, Lord Jesus, and would you increase? I ask you this, I beg you this, I plead with you on this. In the name of Jesus, 
And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Allow me just to quickly tell y'all a, a story. A story of a, of a little boy. The year was 1995. It was a Friday evening. And there was a boy ready with his bags packed, toys, sports equipment in the backpack, standing on the curb in the front of his house, waiting for the arrival of his father. See, the boy's father and mother had broken up some years earlier. And from time to time during the summer, the boy would visit his father. But this particular day was different. See, this was during the school year. And they were going to have an intimate time together. They were going to go fishing. They were going to go to the movies. They were going to stay up late, eat junk food together during the school year. A few days before that Friday, the father called the son and said, son, we're going to be there to pick you up on Friday at 5 p.m. Be ready. Friday at 5. So you know the little boy he goes to school that day. And you know how it is when you're really anticipating something and you look at the clock and the clock freezes, right? And you're looking at it and it looks like it hasn't moved for the last, like, 35 minutes. And they're just sitting there and he's the boy sitting there and he's getting antsy and he's, he's rocking back and forth. And he's waiting for the clock to hit. And finally the clock hits. Three, the boy books it out of school, runs home, gets his backpack, packs his bags all excited. He makes sure that he's out on that curb, not at 5 o'clock, he's at the curb at 4. You know how excited kids be. They be there early, and he got his backpack on, and he, he's doing this, right? And, you know, he, he probably did a 1,000 calf races, man. Boy, boy calf was big, boy. He, he was there. He was ready. He was excited. And as the, the time went, it seemed like every car that passed by in the distance was his father's car. And so he would see the car come, and he would get excited, but it wasn't, it wasn't time yet, and it wasn't his car. And so he'd, he'd sit back there, and then another car would come, and he, and he would sit, and eventually four turned to five, and five turned to six, and six turned to seven. No sign of the father's car. The boy's mother was standing at the window behind him, looking at him with like an, a, a face. It was like a mixture of being somber and angry and, and sad, all kind of combined. And she's staring at her son as his heart breaks, as car after car goes by, and the person driving the car is not his father. And his mother, looking at him, says, baby, why don't you come back in the house? No, I'm not going to come back in the house. He's going to be here. Just, just one more minute. You know, it's a few more minutes. Finally, about 8 o'clock, as the cars roll by and the son's demeanor starts to drop, the mother can't take it anymore and goes out, grabs her son by the hand, and walks him in the house. And she said, are you all right? And the son was like, yeah, I'm fine. But he wasn't fine. <laughs> For the first time, something made sense to that boy. 
he started to realize that my, da my, my, my daddy don't want me. See, this isn't the first time that this happened to that boy. It's happened several times, but it was the first time the mother was unable to protect and shield the son from the faithlessness of his father. That boy, for the first time, experienced something called the sin of omission. The sin of omission is not doing what you said you would do. Not because you lack the actual capability to do it, not because you had a scheduling conflict, not because, you know, there was an emergency and you couldn't fulfill your obligation. The sin of omission is not doing what you said you wanted to do because you had a greater desire that stripped you of your attention of your prior commitment. So that boy took the stuff out of his bag And he felt rejected and betrayed and small. And as I tell that story, I know many of you guys can actually empathize with something like that. I know that many of you at home can empathize with something like that. Our world's broken, ain't it? Maybe you felt in some time in your past the sting of, ab of abandonment. Maybe you felt the weight of not being wanted. But Christians, hear me this morning. Your promises have power. They have the power to uplift and they have the power to break someone's heart. And so when you make a, a commitment or a promise, you had better do your best to fulfill that. See, the little boy was never beaten by his father, never verbally abused by his father. None of that. He fell victim to the sin of omission, to the sin of faithlessness. And in our text this morning, we're going to see the people of God treating their father with the same faithlessness that this father had treated his son with. Look in your Bible at Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. As we see Malachi calling out his people for their lack of faith and lack of loyalty. We're just going to consider this one verse today. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Let's stop there. This, their sin of ingenuine worship to God, right? Because that's, that's what has been happening in Malachi, if you've been following us. The sin of, of ingenuine worship to God is now leaking out horizontally with one another. They're starting to deal with one another in a similar fashion that they began to deal with God first, giving him junk and calling it worship. God wasn't having that. 
Well, this, this text shows that though the, 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 the people of Judah were treating God as he was trash, they started treating each other as trash. They had no regard for the well-being of their sisters and brothers around them. And it's funny because you would think that the people of Israel had a unique solidarity because of their history. It's funny when a people go through a, a, an event of like some kind of a tragic, deep, momentous event, you would think that those people would maintain some kind of unity, solidarity, you know, a stronger fidelity, a bond. But practically, that's not true. It's true in a temporal sense, but, but in the long run, we always see, we see those same people who experience those same traumas, biting, hurting, and killing each other. The, the people of Israel received the promises of God together, right? They were the people of God together. They endured hardship together. They were wandering in the wilderness and defending their territory together. Malachi even appeals to the fact that they are one people with one creator and one father. That's what Malachi is telling them, but practically that couldn't be farther from the truth. Injustice is what defined these people. Their brokenness defined them more than their unity did. The people of Israel were in captivity for so long, and I'll go over that a little bit in a, in a second, and we went over it in the past sermons, but they were in captivity so long that they lost their sense of village. You know what I'm saying? They lost their sense of community. They lost that sense of, I am my brother's keeper. Pillar Church, I don't want verse 10 to be lost on y'all. Look at it again because we need not make the same mistake. Look at verse 10 says, it says, don't all of us have one father? We do, Pillar. Didn't one God create us? Yes. Why do we deal treacherously with one another? Guys, we got to have an open policy of communication at Pillar. Because the second, the second we care about our own personal preference over the, 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 the betterment of the village is when our people as a church will start to feel the treachery of one another. When selfishness reigns in your heart, the village will suffer. Nothing grows by accident except for weeds, y'all. Which means you got to be intentional about communicating with each other. You got to be intentional about praying, about cutting through that minutiae that we have when we haven't seen each other in a while. Hey, man, how you doing? Did you get that haircut? That's good. That's fine. That's dandy. But how about, brother, how's your soul? How can I pray for you right now? Talk about the haircut. Talk about the game. Have fun. But if we're going to cultivate a healthy relationship as the people of God, then we got to talk about the, the things that are choking out our faith. We got to be able to see within us, both receive it and give it the criticism of, uh, or, or the, 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 um, the calling out of our selfishness over the betterment of the village, the people. Because whether you want to hear this or not, you are your brother's keeper. Calvin, I need you to keep me right. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
I need y'all at home. I need y'all to keep each other right, which means you got to call each other. You can't let a pandemic separate you. And by God's grace, we've we've, we've been able to see that and experience that. And and, and we're still here largely because of that. And so I want to call us to remember and take heed of the warning that we see in chapter two, verse 10 of Malachi, that we will have treacherous uh, interactions with one another lest we cultivate healthy habits of growth, leaning into awkward moments for the sake of healthiness, for the sake of growth, for the sake of cultivation. Now, it's interesting to note whether or not the people of Judah, their faithlessness toward one another was a causal reaction or a correlating react or a cor- correlating behavior. OK, was was it a, a causal reaction or was it a correlating behavior, that treachery amongst one another? Now, what do I mean by that? Causation would mean that as a result of their uh, treacherous dealings with God, their deteriorating relationship with God, they ended up treating each other with treachery, right? They had a deteriorating vertical relationship and that that melted in to the way they treated everybody else. Because if they're not going to respect God, what makes you think they're going to respect you, right? Or is it a correlating relationship, a correlating behavior, meaning they just happen to be disrespecting God and people all at the same time. And one doesn't necessarily precipitate the other. It just, we're just sinners and we treat everybody like trash. And it's interesting because it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I think it's more of a causal relationship than a correlating relationship. Because I think the testimony of scripture will bear that out. I think in Genesis chapter three, um, the history of Adam and Eve, when, when Adam and Eve first sinned, all of a sudden a depraved, self-centered heart and mind was developed within man, right? There was something happened in the, because it wasn't always that way. Something entered in to what was good and, and, and corrupted it, right? Sin began to rule in our hearts. You look in your cross-reference sheet. Sin began to, to rule in our hearts and deal treacherously with one another. And you'll see that in Genesis 3 through 4, Genesis 6, Jeremiah 17, Psalm 58, Romans 3, Romans 5. It seems, that, it seems to me that Cain wouldn't have killed Abel if Cain had had a right relationship with God in the first place. But because Cain's relationship with God was jacked up and he had a desire for himself to be lifted amongst whatever else scripture doesn't say that I don't know what else was going on with him. He decided his only course of action was to murder his brother. But a right relationship with God. I believe scripture would would have us believe that 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 murder wouldn't have taken place. You see, God is our setting stone. Everything, every stone we lay down after his guiding stone is laid down is determined by, is determined by our, our, how can I say this? I wrote it. I want to read it. I want to say it different. Our lives will be crooked or straight based on how accurately we set our stones after the guiding stone, after the cornerstone. But the problem is we set our stones a crooked because we don't like the way the cornerstone has been set. And so we start 
turning it just a little bit this way because we think we know better than the, than, than the Lord Almighty and we think that doing it this way is just a little bit different and what we show is that we're trusting ourselves rather than trusting God because though the stone may look crooked to us, the issue is our perception of the straightness of the stone because God doesn't lay anything crooked. It's a lack of satisfaction in what God is and does that leads to a fallen, unfulfilled attempt to satisfy ourselves with something else. Here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 through 16, this section that we're going to cover this week and next week, God is showing Judah their fractured relationship with him as it manifests itself in how they deal with one another. And there are two primary ways that the text tells us that their jacked up relationship with God is manifesting itself with everybody else in the text. I tell you now, there are more than, than what is here, but this is what was happening in, in, in Judah during the time of Malachi. The first one is this, if you were to read that section, I'm not going to read it, but chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. The first is that they started marrying non-believers, which results and generational idolatry. The second thing they started doing is divorcing the wife of their youth, which leads to brokenness and dereliction. We'll see both of those next Sunday. We're going to look at both of those next Sunday. And the reason why is because I need to explain a concept to you in order to help you appreciate the text more. And this is going to take a little while to explain. Maybe, maybe not. And I think that understanding this concept is going to give you a more enriched understanding of the book of Malachi as a whole. In fact, as we look through this concept, you can reverse apply it to the other three sermons that we preached in the book of Malachi already. Look at chapter 2, verse 10 again. It says that Judah is guilty of what? Profaning the covenant of their ancestors. We need to continue to grasp an understanding of the weight of a covenant to best appreciate the passages. The covenant is not, the word covenant is not used too frequently in the 21st century. It's just not a word we tend to say. And so therefore the word has lost its weight and its meaning. But the people of Israel made a covenant with God that he would be their God and that they would be his people, right? That they would obey the word of the Lord, the ways of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord, the laws of the Lord, that they would obey him, that they would be his. They made a covenant. Now, what's crazy about the, 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 the phrase, they made a covenant, is that it's not actually they made a covenant. The actual phraseology is they cut a covenant. They would literally cut an animal when they made a covenant. So when a covenant was cut, two parties would come together and they would agree on terms of a relationship, right? That makes sense. They would agree on their terms of their relationship. After coming to an agreement, they would take an animal and they would literally cut, either cut its throat or cut it completely in half. Like, like this is bloody. 
and they would cut the animal in half. And they would, if they cut it in half, they would lay the animal side to side, opened up. And in between, as they oftentimes would build a ravine in the middle, a small ditch in the middle, the blood would leak from the animal into the ravine. So they would do it this way, or they would take the blood from the slit throat of the animal and spray it upon the people. This is how they cut covenant. You see a great example of this in Genesis chapter 15 when God and Abraham cut covenant together. In effect, when you cut covenant, this is what you're saying. Listen to this. The cross reference is in your sheet, Jeremiah 34. This is what you're saying when you cut covenant. You're saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, let it be done for me as these lifeless animals. Okay, that, that's, that's how serious cutting covenant is. It's deeper than a handshake. It has more weight than a verbal agreement. It has more gravity than a contract bound by law because this is a contract bound by blood. There's weight here. Life and death hangs in a covenant. Israel made a a covenant with their God that he would be their God and that they would be their people. Look at your cross-reference sheet quickly at Exodus chapter 24. I want your eyes to see what my mouth is going to say. Exodus 24, verse 3. You at home, it should be in the comments, the cross-reference sheet. We're going to look at Exodus 24, verse 3, in the following. Moses came and told the people, all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice. Look at what they said, right? We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Then you go down to verse 78. It says, he then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. And they responded. How did they respond? We will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Verse 8. So what did Moses do? Moses took the blood, and he scattered it, splattered it onto the people, and said, this is the blood of the new covenant that the Lord has cut with you concerning all these words. Y'all see, y'all see some way here? And then in Exodus 29, verse 45 and 46, it says this. God says this. He's making it clear what this covenant means. I will dwell among, I will dwell among the Israelites to be what? To be their God. And they will know that I alone am their Lord. I alone am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. And then he makes the statement declarative again. I am the Lord, their God. So the covenant is, just to sum it, sum it up, we will be his people and he will be our God. And in that context in Exodus, they're coming out of Egypt under the idolatry of false Egyptian God worship. Not just was he battling Pharaoh, and if you looked at the sermon series, Freedom from Oppression, we highlight the reality of that. He's fighting against Egyptian gods, destroying Egyptian gods in the midst of his plagues. 
The covenant God cut with Moses and the Israelites is something called a bilateral covenant. And we're going to understand that a little bit later, too. But God was going to hold them accountable to the terms of their covenant. Why? Because what did they say? We will obey all that the Lord has commanded us. Now, if you're just joining us in this series, you may have missed how we ended up at this particular point in the passage. Like, how are people starting to deal treacherously with one another? And I know I highlighted it, but let me give you an overview and hopefully we we can land right here again. The series is called True Worship because this is exactly what God is calling his people to do in the book of Malachi. He's calling them to true worship, not perfect worship. Okay, don't get it twisted. He's, He's not saying perfect worship. He's asking for authentic worship, genuine worship true. We are fallen. I don't even know what perfection looks like in worship, but he wants authentic from the heart worship of him. See, the Israelites had an attitude towards God because they feel like God had slighted them. In our first sermon series, you'll see in in the beginning of Malachi chapter one, verses one through five, they say, God, how have you loved me? And God has to remind them that not only has he put his, his, his sovereign hands of choosing on them, but he's like, I didn't destroy you when you sinned, bro. How did I love you? My mercy is love. We don't see it that way, right? Because we, we're, we're, so, we're so prideful. We demand more of God. It's not his mercy love, though. And that's what he's highlighting. I got y'all. Y'all dogged me out, but I didn't, I didn't murk you like I do everybody else. So they're angry at God because they say, how have you loved us? Because they've just endured 70 years of Babylonian captivity. They were in the hands of foreigners for 70, 70. People are born and died within that range. 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And God comes to them like, I love you. It's almost a natural human reaction to be like, what? How you love me, you let me sit in this. How you gonna let me be in bondage and for 70 years and tell me you love me? And that's where God goes, nah, bro, my mercy. Y'all survived this mug, didn't you? I should've, I should have wiped you out. Should have just on some old Noah. The people of Judah, after agreeing to the terms of this covenant. Would have the covenant I, I, I just quoted above in Exodus eventually fell into idol worship. And they didn't fall into idol worship once. They fell into idol worship constantly. Remember, remember what God said? I will be your God, right? I will be the Lord, your God. I'm the only one who's your God. But only two chapters later, what do we find from Exodus 29? In Exodus 32, what do we find? We find the people of God, after they agreed to a covenant, melting down some metal, creating a calf, and worshiping it. And to sting God's statement, I mean... The, the, the restraint of God. Exodus 32, verse 8. They attributed their redemption from Egypt to that little piece of metal. I'm so, I praise God I'm not God. I would have murked everybody up in there. Like, word? After all of that? Word? Okay. What heck? Everybody gone. Not only were they worshiping a false god, but they began to treat each other with injustice. 
not caring for the widows or the orphans, one person taking advantage of another person. Their, their, their vision got narrow, it got self-centered. And remember earlier, you know what people are in trouble when their vision begins to narrow on themselves. So God being merciful doesn't destroy these people. He hands them over to another nation. So we go from the Exodus part and they're, and they're, they're sinning and, and they're doing golden calf stuff and, and they're walking the wilderness and God promises them a land and they start to inhabit that land and take over that land. But in the midst of, of all this work between disobeying, taking over certain parts and all this, they, they do this idol worship and God sends the Babylonians to come and snatch them away. And 70 years later, they return and this is where we find ourselves in the text. They're bitter towards God. They've returned to their homeland, but they're angry at God because of what God had, had, had put them through and so God tells them I love them and proves it to them you saw that in Malachi chapter 1 verse 5 and then in, in Malachi chapter 6 verse 14 we saw God call them out for their disrespectful posture of worship right and so it's almost like a natural flow it starts with the heart the motive I, the love and then it goes well wait a minute you're worshiping me not right and now we're coming wait a minute now y'all ain't even treating each other right y'all see the cascade And then God warned those priests of their covenant breaking in Pastor Eric's sermon in Malachi chapter 2, verse 1 through 9 in the sermon called Revere Him. And now we have God illuminating something called the sin of omission because Israel is always guilty and they're notorious for the sin of omission, the sin of falsely breaking their, uh, the sin of faithlessly breaking their promise because they have a greater love or desire. See, it's easy to break it's easy to break our promises to one another because we don't understand the fidelity or the gravity of our statements. In other words, we don't realize how much our promises matter in real life. I want you to, for a moment, take a look at your own life and remember a time when someone promised something to you and did not come through. Not something inconsequential. Don't think when they promised you, you know, promised to take you for a meal or something like that. Something that mattered to you. Something that had weight in your life. They promised you, I got you. I will be there. It will happen. X, Y, Z. And it didn't come through. How did that, what did that do to you? But then I want you to take it a step further. I want you to think of every single time that you've made a commitment and a promise that, that you didn't keep. See, it's funny, we got grace for ourselves, but when that person did it, the commitment you made to your church that you didn't fulfill, the commitment you made to your spouse that you didn't fulfill, the commitment you made to your family that you didn't fulfill. I think it is all the time. Here's my personal one. Y'all ready for some, for some confession? The commitment I make to my kids and don't fulfill. I know why I can say that with confidence, because I had the only one. We ain't got to pretend to be perfect up in this joint. Why is it so easy? Why is it so easy to, to not fulfill our promises? Because we don't understand that our promises have consequences in weight. And it's greater than what we see in the moment. Sometimes the weight doesn't come to fruition till generations later. 
You know what we say? We say what the people of Judah said in Malachi chapter 1, verse 13. You see it in the cross-reference sheet. What did they say when God tried to hold them to the standard that they agreed to? They said, oh, what a nuisance. And they scorn it. Man, that's a lot. Oh, man, I don't know if I could do all that. Can you imagine if God was fickle like you and me? <laughs> if God made promises that he would renege on? Praise God, he's faithful. And he keeps his promises to his people despite his people. And I say despite his people because now I want to nuance what a covenant can look like. Earlier I said there's something called a bilateral covenant. A bilateral covenant is when two parties come to an agreement and they both either walk through the blood of the cut animals or they're all sprayed with the blood of the animals. And so both sides have a commitment to adhere to the terms of the covenant. Bilateral. That is not despite anything. You will uphold yours, I will uphold mine. And if one of us breaks it, let it be to us as it is these animals. That's a bilateral covenant. Both parties come to an agreement and both parties have action. But that's not the only kind of covenant we see in the text. We also see in the text something called a unilateral covenant. A unilateral covenant is one party, two parties making an agreement, and one party has to keep the terms of the agreement. And if you remember in Genesis chapter 15, when God cut covenant with Abraham, Abraham was put to sleep and was not allowed to walk through the blood, but the pot, the smoking pot, which represented the presence of God, went through the blood of the animals, saying, despite you, Abraham, I will uphold my promises to you. It doesn't matter what you do. My hand is going to be true. My promises will come to fruition. Nothing can stop me. That's a unilateral covenant. No matter what we do, the other party will uphold their agreement. But when God made his covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, was that a bilateral covenant or a unilateral covenant? Well, if you remember in the cross-reference sheet, they took the blood and where did they spray it? On the people of Israel. And what was their response? We will do work. Works. If they don't do, they receive curse. Curses for their disobedience. But I praise God that God knows us better than we know us. Because we're just like these people of Judah and Israel. We would claim and promise God fidelity, but we would inevitably renege on our promise to him. Because that's what sinful people do. Our hearts are idol-making machines. You saw what happened when they first made the first covenant. They made the covenant. Two chapters later, they're making something to worship. We do the same thing now. We just don't melt metal and build it into a calf. We worship a whole lot of things. Most of them nowadays are non-tangible. They're ideas. They're states of being. The praise of man. 
Whatever it is, we make something else God. Like we prayed here this morning, whatever happens, let God's, fix, let God's will be done. Because I'm prideful. I'm going to make an idol of the message preached. I'm going to make an idol of our singing and, and, and the performance. And it's not a performance. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be from the heart. It needs to be what the title of the sermon is. It needs to be true worship. Despite what it looks like to other people. We're, we're singing and we're, we're here. This is to God first. Everybody else is secondary and tertiary. It's God first. Because of our lack of faithfulness to God and because he knows us better than we know us, he sends his son. He sends his son to do something. He sends his son to institute a new covenant. And this covenant is not like the covenant that Israel made at Mount Sinai. This is a different covenant, a new covenant. Whew, there's so much I want to say right now. Look in your cross-reference sheet at Romans chapter 5. I want your eyes to see what my words are going to say. What my mouth is going to say. Romans 5, your cross sheet. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Y'all notice that? They're already categorized as ungodly. <laughs> so if Christ's blood is going to apply to you, you must first admit that you fit this category. But verse 7, for rarely will someone die for a just person. Why? Because they don't need it. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But look at what verse 8 says and let the weight of verse 8 hit. But God proves. Some of your translations say demonstrates. He's convincing you of something. What did he do? God is proving, demonstrating, convincing you of his love for us that while we were still sinners, so if we are sinners in that old bilateral covenant, curses for us. But it continues and says, but Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been, wait, we've been what? Justified. By what? His blood. What does that mean? The word justification means to be declared righteous. We, though we are sinners and ungodly, are being declared as righteous, not because we told God we would do, but because Christ did, and we are in Christ who already performed. And it's his blood, not the blood of a bull or a goat, but it's his blood that now saves, that fulfills the terms of the covenant. Y'all crazy, y'all see this? I don't know how to make it more clear. Yeah. 
It says, verse 9, after it says we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. Verse 10, for while we were enemies, do you see all the negative words they're using about us? Ungodly sinners, enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Verse 11, be hitting me too. And not only that, but we boast in God. Not through our works. You're not a good little boy, little girl. We will boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's so much. I know y'all have read these passages before. Read it slow. Let it simmer a little bit because it hits different. See, just like those old covenants, there was blood shed, but not the blood of bulls and goats. It was the blood of Jesus. Like the, the covenants of old, there, there was blood made a binding agreement, but not based on the performance of the people, but based on the promised, perfect, fulfilled work in Jesus. Like the covenants of old, the terms of the agreement were met, not for all who give God perfect worship, but for all who turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus, therefore producing within us authentic, true worship that God deserves. When we stumble, we repent according to the terms of this new covenant and the power of his blood that we too can be forgiven. Look at Matthew 26, verse 28. Look what it says. Praise God for this verse. In your cross-reference sheet, it says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God doesn't take covenants lightly. God, the son, was, was massacred in the establishment of a new covenant. And so when we make covenants, promises, that mug got weight to it. And once we get loose with our covenants, know that God's word will come after you. And it will manifest itself in various sinful ways. If you're guilty of breaking your promises, if you're guilty of being a lackadaisical, noncommittal, whatever it is that you have inflicted upon somebody, there's grace for you. But I implore you to never do that again. As scripture says, let your yes be yes and let your no's be no but you had better understand the weight of a covenant, of a promise when you make it. That little boy was never the same 
after he recognized a promise broken. And that little boy has a choice to either perpetuate the brokenness that he experienced or to exemplify never doing that to anybody ever again. And you have the same options. And I pray that the example of Christ's fidelity in fulfilling his obligations to his covenant would inspire you to do and be the same. Whether it's your family, your marriage vows, or anything else. If you've committed to the Lord Jesus, hold that commitment with weight. Father, thank you for your word because there's so much more that the the idea of covenant should communicate to us. And I pray that we would begin to take seriously the realities and the weight of our words. The people of Israel promised one thing and reneged. And now you're calling their bluff. What we learn from their example and what we learn from the example of Christ Because Christ didn't renege on his promise. Christ fulfilled his covenant. He fulfilled his promises to us. And if we are to be chiseled and made more and more into the image of the Son, then the weight and the reality of covenant shall weigh on our minds and our hearts. Lord, do a work in us to be men and women of integrity. Not because we're good, but because, but because our relationship with you is good. And you are worthy of all praise. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.